Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 31, 1 Samuel, chapters 18 and 19. It's been a while since we've had our last lesson, so let's begin by getting our bearings and rereading 1 Samuel chapter 18 in its entirety. Open your Bible to first chap, uh, the first uh, pardon me, the first verse of of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, which is on page 318. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, begins like this. By the time David had finished speaking to Shaul, Jehonatan found himself inwardly drawn by David's character so that Jehonatan loved him as he did himself. That day, Shaul took David into his service and wouldn't let him go home to his father's house anymore. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he did himself. Jonathan removed the cloak he was wearing. He gave it to David, his armor too, including his sword, his bow, his belt. David would go out no matter where Saul sent him. He was successful. Saul put him in charge of the fighting men. All the people thought it good. So did Saul's servants. Now as David and the others were returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing joyfully with tambourines and three-stringed instruments. And in their merrymaking, the women sang, Oh, Saul has killed his thousands. But David is tens of thousands. Saul became very angry because this song displeased him. And he said, they give David credit for tens of thousands. They give me credit for only thousands. Now all he lacks is the kingdom. From that day on, Shaul viewed David with suspicion. The following day, an evil spirit from God came powerfully over Saul so that he fell into a frenzy in the house. David was there playing his lyre as on other occasions, but this time Saul had a spear in his hand and he threw the spear thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David dodged out of the way twice. Shul became afraid of David because Adonai was with him and had left Saul. Therefore, Saul put him at a distance from himself by making him commander over a thousand. His goings and comings became public knowledge. David had great success in all of his ways. Adonai was with him. When Saul saw how very successful he was, he became afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because they knew about his campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merav. I will give her to you as your wife. Only continue displaying your courage for me and fight Adonai's battles. Saul was thinking, I don't dare touch him, so let the Philistines do away with him. David's response to Saul was, Who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? I don't have any kind of a life. My father's family has no rank in Israel. However, when it was time for Merav, Shaul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given to Adriel the Mecholati as his wife. But Michal, Shaul's daughter, fell in love with David. They told Saul it pleased him. And Saul said, I'll give her to him so that she can entrap him and the Philistines can do away with him. So Saul said to David, Today you will become my son-in-law through the second daughter. 
Saul ordered his servants to speak privately with David and say, Look, the king is pleased with you. All his servants like you. So become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants said this to David, but David replied, Do you think being the king's son-in-law is something to be treated so casually, given that I'm a poor man without social standing? Saul's servants reported back to him how David had responded, and Saul said, Here's what you're to say to David. The king doesn't want any dowry. He wants a hundred foreskins of the Philistines so that he can have vengeance on the king's enemies. For Saul was hoping to have David killed by the Philistines, and when his servants said these words to David, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Even before the time for him to be married, David got up and set out, he and his men, and he killed 200 men of the Philistines. He brought their foreskins and gave all of them to the king in order to become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as his wife. Saul saw and understood that Adonai was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. This only made Saul the more afraid of David so that Saul became David's enemy for the rest of his life. The leaders of the Philistines would attack, but whenever they attacked, David was more successful than any of Saul's servants, so that David acquired a great reputation. This chapter begins with the story of a strong personal and spiritual bond being formed between David and Saul's son Jonathan. Now from the spiritual perspective, I kind of liken this to being the same kind of covenant bond that ought to exist among all members of God's earthly church. A bond based on a mutual link of love between us all and our Savior and God Yeshua. Now from a personal perspective, however, it was certainly a matter of choice and preference between these two men, whether they would be mere acquaintances, fast friends, or maybe they'd even just avoid each other. In other words, despite the spiritual bond that links all believers, we certainly don't also share a common or equal like for everybody we come into contact with who calls him or herself a Christian. Unfortunately, we kind of tend to to, to mix up these two dynamics. Rather, we find people to connect with who have certain personality traits that we admire or certain interests or backgrounds that we share. There are others with whom we really just don't connect because we don't have anything in common other than our love for the Lord. That's perfectly normal. It's fine in God's eyes. The bottom line is that the link that connects all believers is through Christ like the hub at the center of a wheel. Not believer to believer to believer. However, Jonathan and David were drawn towards one another. And they wanted to establish a lifelong bond of friendship. The scripture makes it clear that it was certain outstanding character traits of each that was the catalyst for this friendship. Little did Jonathan know at the time that he would soon have to choose between his father, King Saul, 
and the God-anointed king-in-waiting, David. And this inevitable trajectory shouldn't surprise us because after all, David was the prototype of the God-established Messiah of the future while King Saul was the prototype of the anti-king, anti-Christ of the future. While it's mankind's way, even in the institutional church, to constantly seek a means to get along with and befriend a, a, a wicked and perverse world at the same time that we profess absolute dedication to walk in the paths of a good and perfect Savior, in the end, God was going to polarize mankind to such an extent as Jonathan would soon experience. And I think we see that happening at an accelerating rate in our time. That is to say that as much as we prefer one foot in the temporal world and the other in the invisible eternal heaven, and often it does seem possible, although it's an illusion, to straddle that great divide, eventually the divide grows into a Grand Canyon-sized abyss. And circumstances force us to choose to stand with both feet on one side and thus completely abandon the other. Ultimately, Jonathan would not be able to maintain loyalty to both his father and his friend, although he would struggle mightily to do so for some amount of time. In verse 4, when Jonathan gave David his cloak, armor, and weapons, it was a twofold gesture. First, it was to seal the covenant of friendship between he and David. And second, it was to put himself on an equal, if not to some degree lesser, political level with David. This was not an act of submission, as some might, might suggest. Rather, it was an almost intuitive, if not prophetic, admission of David's special nature and relationship with the God of Israel. As Saul's eldest son, Jonathan was by custom the natural heir to the throne. Royalty wore distinctive clothing to separate themselves from commoners to visibly announce their status. When Jonathan took off his garment of royalty, and put it on to David. It was well understood by the king and his court and everybody who knew about it, just what that gesture meant. This was but the first of several similar events that serve to unnerve Saul and make him murderously jealous of David. Now the next event that shook Saul is stated quite succinctly in verse 5. David would go out and no matter where Saul sent him, he was successful. You know, this reality served to further elevate Saul's suspicions and paranoia because often David wasn't supposed to be successful. He was supposed to get killed by the enemy in battle. You know, politics and politicians being pretty much the same since the beginning of humanity, King Saul had little choice but to keep elevating David's level of military stature to appease his court and his subjects because his prowess and his 
battle record was obvious to everyone who witnessed it and the legends that grew out of it. In no time at all, David became both politically powerful and publicly popular. Soon David was again fighting the dreaded Philistines, and again he won handily, and as the military victory parade wound its way back to the city of Gibeah, where King Saul's palace was located, from his perch on his regal chariot, the king overheard the songs of some women admirers comparing David to Saul, and they saw David as the rock star, and King Saul as just a member of the band. This infuriated the king, who was supposed to get all the credit for his nation's military victories. It was fine for the people to honor a good soldier and leader such as David, but to glorify him above the king? Combined with the earlier events, this one seemed to cement in Saul a lethal distrust in David, that in the world of kings and potentates, meant there was little choice but to do away with this potential rival. Now as we go along today, I'd like you to keep in mind the pattern that's being painted here. The king versus the anti-king. The deliverer versus the anti-deliverer. And the evil spirit-possessed man against the God-anointed elect man. Of course we see this pattern played out about a thousand years later as Yeshua makes his first earthly appearance and is immediately confronted by the evil king Herod and then later by the prince of the air, Satan himself. Now in verse 10, the scene shifts to Saul's palace. And David is there playing the lyre. David is not only the king's chief musician, he's also a well-known military leader now, and so is in front of not only the king's inner court, but also the public. And try as Saul might to push David to the rear and even to kill him, everything is thwarted. And David just keeps gaining the loyalty and admiration not only of the people, but even of the king's own family. Thus, as David is quietly playing music to soothe one of Saul's infamous dark moods, suddenly the king throws his spear at David with the intent of pinning him to the wall. Twice it happened. Both times David was agile enough to dodge the deadly missile. Now, we'll see as we move along that Saul's spear was always in his hand. This was not usual for a king. Normally a king held his royal scepter as the symbol of his power. Rarely left his hand. But for Saul, his spear had become his scepter. This weapon of death became Saul's emblem. Saul had literally come to fear David because while he didn't know that David had already been consecrated as Israel's king by Jehovah, he did recognize a threat to the throne when he saw one. David was able and immensely popular, the worst sort to have near the king, especially if the king sensed that he couldn't manipulate this fellow 
or match the adoration the public held for him. Well, verse 15 continues an underlying and terribly important theme of the story of David and Saul. In the end, Saul was afraid of David because Jehovah was with David. And David was successful in all of his endeavors for the same reason. God being with David and at the same time being opposed to Saul is the reason that all of what we see happening happens. Remember that Samuel had informed Saul that he was no longer the legitimate king of Israel. But it was Saul's response to just ignore the Lord and keep fighting to keep his throne. And since Samuel was God's word, God's oracle, on earth to King Saul, representing God's presence with Saul, and Samuel had permanently separated himself from King Saul, Saul understood to some level or another that he had lost contact with God. He also seemed to comprehend that what he formerly possessed for himself, God's spirit, was now removed from him. And it was resting upon David. But as much as Saul feared David, the people of both Israel and Judah loved David because of his victorious exploits. No doubt the obvious contrast between Saul's demeanor and character and David's also played a pretty substantial role in their ever-growing adulation of David. Now here's a good time for me to reiterate something that is so key from here on in the Bible. Israel and Judah are mentioned separately because they were seen as separate tribal coalitions and later on kingdoms. Almost the minute, almost from the minute, the twelve tribes stepped foot into Canaan, ending their exodus from Egypt. The northern coalition of tribes that would eventually count ten of the twelve as belonging among them was here being called Israel. While the southern tribal coalition of Simeon and Judah were being called Judah. Thus, as we, we, we get further along into the ending chapters of 1 Samuel and then proceed into the second, uh, second book of Samuel, we're going to see David forced to deal with this centuries-old political reality by first becoming king over the southern tribal coalition headed by his own tribe, Judah, and only later king over the northern coalition. The result would finally be a unified sovereign nation of all 12 tribes. A nation recognized by her neighbors as being a legitimate nation for the first time in history. The nation was called Israel. But that would only last for a mere 80 years. Until David's son King Solomon died and a civil war split the nation of Israel back into two kingdoms or two coalitions that were traditional. Now at first these two kingdoms 
reincorporated the use of their former names, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But it was only a matter of a handful of decades before the north stopped calling themselves Israel and instead began calling themselves Ephraim. This reflected the new reality that the tribe of Ephraim had become the most powerful and the other northern tribes more or less submitted to Ephraim's overwhelming domination. See, it was standard Middle Eastern practice for a territory to be named after the most dominant tribe residing there. So it was natural that the northern region would eventually be called Ephraim. The southern region retained the name of Judah because Judah remained the dominant tribe in that territory as it had been since shortly after Joshua led Israel over the Jordan. Now this important piece of history, it plays a pivotal, pivotal role in redemption history right on up to today and even into the future. As a matter of fact, not too long from now, I hope to repeat an updated seminar on the ten lost tribes of Israel that addresses this whole matter in, in, in a lot of detail. Well, verse 17 begins a series of two attempts uh, by Saul to get rid of David by means of offering David first his older and then younger daughters. Now, it's a cunning plan because on the surface... For David, it appears that he was just but finally receiving the agreed-to prize for his killing of Goliath. Think back to 1 Samuel 17, 25, where it says, The soldiers from Israel said to each other, You saw that man who just came up? He's come to challenge Israel. To whoever kills him, the king will give a rich reward. He'll give him his daughter and exempt his father's family from all service and taxes in Israel. Saul's idea then is to use his daughter as a means of treachery. All right, to both spy on David and to be a snare to him. So Saul promises his daughter Merav, but the offer comes with a hook and a raising of the bar. Saul promised to give his daughter to the Israelite soldier who slew Goliath, but now he says... He wants David to continue fighting Adonai's battles. In other words, now that David has killed Goliath for him, Saul wants David's promise to continue being a battlefield commander who fights alongside of his men. With the obvious intent that sooner or later David's going to get killed. Now I'd like to focus for a moment on that part of Saul's statement where he refers to fighting Yehovah's battles, which is what it actually says. Saul invoked the Lord as a means of masking his real intentions and at the same time making himself appear pious. While in one sense, indeed, the centuries-long battle for Canaan was an ongoing holy war, in another sense... Not every battle or cause of conflict against Gentile nations in that region met that high standard. Holy war has God-ordained rules. And a battle under that lofty banner had to be God-led. 
The battles that Saul sent David to fight, usually against the Philistines, were the result of ulterior motives by Saul. It wasn't for the purpose of conducting holy war under God's direction. Often it was for the purpose of Saul carrying out a personal agenda. This is a real warning to us. We and the leadership in God's church, we have this bad habit of carelessly bandying about the Lord's name when trying to get someone to do something we think ought to be done. Or as a means of attaching a measure of holiness or divine acceptance to an assignment or a project that we're determined to see accomplished. In other words, the name of God is invoked as a kind of manipulation or as a means to forestall any debate. (laughs) Because, for example, if your pastor says the Lord wants you to lead a project to raise money and construct a new building, who can argue with it? We should be very reticent, very reticent in using the Lord's name as a means of pressuring others to sign on to something we think is good or maybe advantageous. And we should be equally as reticent in automatically accepting that if a church authority has an instruction for us that they say is from the Lord, that we examine it and make sure it's truly so. David gives to Saul what's really a rather typical Middle Eastern response to when someone, especially a person of higher status, makes such a generous offer to you. In this case of his daughter in marriage. And so David's response is just simply dripping in somewhat exaggerated humility. Who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? He replies. Recall, however, that back in the valley of Elah, the shepherd David was running around asking every Israelite soldier who talked to him if it was really true that Saul had offered money and tax freedom and the king's daughter in marriage to the man who killed Goliath. David wanted to be darn certain of those rewards before he went out to face that Philistine giant. So we have to take David's response to Saul with a grain of salt. And as part of his reply to Saul, David continues to deflect the offer by saying that his family has no rank in Israel. But is that really true? We know from earlier passages in the book of 1 Samuel that Yeshai, Jesse, David's father, was of the ruling clan of Judah and reasonably well-to-do. Again, see, this is where we must take notice of the context of the words because, indeed, while David's family does have rank in Judah the southern tribal coalition, it does not have rank or influence in Israel, the northern tribal coalition. David is aware that Judah is not well regarded by the north. Judah is, 
in general, less wealthy than Israel, far smaller in population, because so much of Judah consisted of the desert regions. They have no seaports. They have no legitimate tribal rights to the riches of the Sea of Galilee. The north is heavily involved in trade and a whole variety of industries. Judah is primarily involved in raising flocks and herds, uh, tending orchards and vineyards. So despite the customary self-effacing nature of David's response to Saul's offer, there was also his own concern that he might not be very accepted by the tribes of the north, Israel, and that this could cause a real problem. Well, without explanation, we're told that when it came time for the formal giving of Saul's daughter Merav to David, Saul changed his mind. And he gave Merav to somebody else. However, in the meantime, another of Saul's daughters had fallen in love with David, Michal. Now, many Bible commentators speculate, and I think with merit, that likely Merav was not so anxious to marry David. But Michal was. And so Saul gave in and used Merav to form some type of sought-after alliance with this, this uh, Adriel the uh, Mecholati, which is actually what the marriage of the daughters of kings was usually all about. Mecholah is thought to be a place near the Jordan River, probably on the on the east side, over in Gad's territory. All we really know is that Adriel is the son of a fellow named Barzillai. And apparently this family was important to Saul for some reason or another. Anyway, again we see in verse 21 that Saul's hope was to use Michal as a means to entrap and kill David. Not to honorably conclude his promise to the soldier who had killed Goliath. Michal loving David was an opportunity for Saul. But once again the Lord would intervene and turn matters on their head. Saul's family was, one by one, giving their loyalty to David. First Jonathan, now Michal. It's interesting that this time Saul didn't approach David directly but used some representatives to speak to David about his daughter Michal. Without doubt, Saul is putting David in his place by not coming to him as a father would to a potential son-in-law. And of course the servant's message is just full of disingenuous flattery. Oh, the king is so pleased with you. Oh, and his servants, meaning the court, they just love you. Oh, yeah. David, again, in typical Middle Eastern fashion, counters that it's an important matter for a man to marry a king's daughter. And so, obviously, a bride price fitting a king would be necessary. But David doesn't have any wealth of his own. So he has no means to pay anything. The messengers go back to Saul with this information. And Saul tells them to return to David, tell him no bright price of material wealth is needed. Rather, David should go and kill a hundred Philistines and present King Saul 
with their foreskins. An example, I think, of when a battle against Israel's enemies isn't necessarily being conducted as a holy war. When David was informed of this counteroffer, he immediately accepted Michal as his bride. <clears throat> now David, because of his character, hurries off even before it was necessary and went out and killed a bunch of Philistines. Most Bible versions say that he was so pious and honorable that he killed 200 Philistines instead of the mere 100 that was agreed to and brought the foreskins to, to Saul. However, when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 14, it says that David only supplied 100 foreskins. Or does it? Here's what it says there. David sent messengers to say to Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, Give me back my wife, Michal. I betrothed her to myself for 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Hmm. Many Bible scholars point to this as an obvious contradiction to 1 Samuel 18.27. Perhaps. But on the other hand, I think that what's being said in 2 Samuel is merely that the agreed-to betrothal price was a hundred foreskins. That's all that's being said. That David brought his father two hundred is rather beside the point. The extra hundred wasn't part of the bride price. It was just a, a bonus. It was a, it was a gift. Well, this chapter ends by expressing... Saul's extreme frustration with the David issue. Everything he tries to counteract David goes awry. Despite Saul's best efforts, David's rise was meteoric. From shepherd to champion, from champion to court musician, from court musician to deft warrior, from deft warrior to popular hero, then a commander of a large force, and now he's part of the king's own family through marriage. And while in earlier times the Philistines had so much success in attacking Israel, now with David on the scene, all Israel knew was victory. Things couldn't have been worse for King Saul. Let's move on to chapter 19. I think we'll just read about the first half of it. We're going to read it all, but I think we'll just read half of it. Say from to about... Um, Oh, about verse uh, 10. Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants that they should have David killed. But because Jonathan was very fond of David, he told him, My father Saul is out to have you killed. Therefore you must be very cautious tomorrow morning. Find a well-concealed place to hide in. I'll go out and stand next to my father in the countryside where you're hiding. I'll talk with my father about you, and if I learn anything, I'll tell you. Well, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and he said to him, The king shouldn't sin against his servant David, because he hasn't sinned against you. 
On the contrary, his work for you has been very good indeed. He put his life in his hands to attack the Philistines. And Adonai accomplished a great victory for all Israel. You saw it yourself. You were happy about it. So why do you want to sin against innocent blood by killing David without any reason? Saul heeded Jonathan's advice and swore as Adonai lives, he will not be put to death. Jonathan called David and told him all these things. And then Jonathan brought David to Saul to be in attendance on the king as before. War broke out. David went and fought the Philistines. He defeated them with a great slaughter. They fled before him. But then an evil spirit from Adonai came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, David was playing his lyre. But when Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, he dodged it and moved out of Saul's way. So that the spear stuck in the wall. David fled. So that night he escaped. David was now Saul's official enemy. Saul wasn't hiding that fact any longer. He became obsessed with killing David. The small, uh, Saul made the smart political move. And he made David not just his personal enemy, but an enemy of the kingdom. Saul's attempts to get David killed at the hand of the Philistines had failed. So now he would take a more direct approach and make it a standing order that anyone who could ought to kill David. Now, Shaul either didn't understand that others didn't share his hatred of David, or he miscalculated his own popularity. Kind of an interesting thing among politicians. <laughs> Either way, when Saul instructed Jonathan, along with some others, to go and kill David, Jonathan immediately ran to tell David about the plot. Apparently Saul didn't fathom the depth of the bond between his son and David. Jonathan found himself defending David, which put himself against his father. But from a spiritual level, it was a matter of Jonathan choosing to side with God's anointed king over the illegitimate king. This is that abyss that I spoke about at the beginning of our lesson. Jonathan had been living with one foot in Saul's camp and the other in David's. But now the gulf between the two was widening. Soon a gut-wrenching choice was going to be required of Jonathan. Following God's anointed is never painless. It will always come with a cost. Matthew 10.34 Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the land. It's not peace I've come to bring, but a sword. I have not come, for I have come to set a man against his father. I've come to set a daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law so that a man's enemies 
will be the members of his own household. John 16.1 I have told you these things so that you won't be caught by surprise. They will ban you from the synagogue or the church. In fact, the time will come when anyone who kills you will think he's serving God. They will do these things because they have understood neither the Father nor me. But I have told you this, so that when the time comes for it to happen, you'll remember that I told you. Jonathan's first step was to try and mediate between the two sides. But he's worried about the outcome. So he sets up a meeting between him and his father in a private place in a field out in the countryside. Jonathan tells David to go and hide nearby so that the results of this meeting can be quickly transmitted to David in case things go badly. Jonathan tries logic, rational thought, to persuade his father that David ought to be treated as anything but an enemy of Israel. He tells the king that David has committed no trespass against him. In fact, he's been wonderfully good towards king and kingdom. He's been brave. He personally led battles against the Philistines, won victory after victory. David has been fully loyal to Saul. Jonathan concludes that if his father agrees that David has done no wrong, then should King Saul follow through with this death threat that it would bring blood guilt upon Saul. Blood guilt, you see, is one of those classes of sins whereby the law provides no means of atonement. No sacrifice will do. No substitute can be made. No gift can be given. God will accept only the blood, the life, of the one who committed the crime of blood is proper justice. The Saul operating under the law of Moses would be a condemned man if he did this. But as Numbers and Deuteronomy point out, the very land and nation upon which the blood guilt occurs will also bear the curse unless they act to punish the criminal, and that action can be no less than death. So if Saul insists on killing David, even Saul's kingdom is going to bear the brunt of God's just fury. And the only solution for it would be to execute the king. Jonathan's argument seems persuasive. So in verse 6, Saul swears an oath, as Jehovah lives, he shall not be killed. Boy, Saul has just dug his spiritual grave even deeper, if that's possible. Saul has sworn to Jonathan a vow. He sealed it with God as the guarantor of that vow. 
it carries as much weight as did that rash vow that Jephthah made back in the days of the judges that cost his daughter's life. It was a lie. It was a lie. Saul had no intention of keeping that vow. He probably only made it as a deception because the passion with which Jonathan presented David's defense made it pretty clear to Saul that Jonathan had sided with David. So Saul made this vow in front of Jonathan so that Jonathan would think that everything's been straightened out. Jonathan, who's none the wiser now, goes to David and he tells him all is well. So convinced is he of his father's repentance and sincerity that he even brings David back to Saul. And Saul allows David back into the court so that things appeared to be back on a nice even keel. Let's stop here for today. We'll pick up next time. Saul makes yet another attempt on David's life.